the advice in this podcast is not unsolicited. If you don't want or care about advice, it's best to skip this episode because this is an episode of a podcast about advice. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about getting better. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth. My name is Grant Brown, and I'm the founder of Happy Eco News. We provide positive news about the environment five times a day and a top five newsletter for your inbox every Monday morning. We only have two goals. One is to help people find hope for the future, and two is to help promote the good people that are doing the good work. I hope your audience will check us out at happyeconews.com and learn how people of all types are making a difference and ultimately that there is still reason for hope. Thank you. We might be in the golden age of advice. There is more advice available to more people for free right now than ever before. There are more people paying to be in therapy from more therapists than ever before. There are more coaches doing coaching for more people than ever before, by a lot. And one question is, is it doing any good? And another question could be, could we get better at it? Better at giving advice, perhaps, but mostly better at getting advice. Giving advice, we'll do that one first and fairly quickly. Unsolicited advice is probably not advice at all. Unsolicited advice goes to people who aren't enrolled. They're not enrolled in hearing what you have to say, and they're not enrolled in changing. If you walk up to somebody in the street and tell them that you don't like the clothes they're wearing or the way they combed their hair, it's really unlikely that this will be well-received. I think most of us know this, but the internet's different because on the internet, we can give advice in lots of ways, synchronous and asynchronous, that we can shout from the rafters. We can tweet or put up videos or simply call people out as if that's a useful hobby. So there's all this advice floating around, probably because the person giving the advice gets pleasure out of venting, not because they honestly believe that the person they're giving unsolicited advice to is going to listen and respond. Zig Ziglar, the late teacher, my friend, Zig Ziglar pointed out that there was a difference between responding and reacting. If the doctor says you are reacting to the medicine, that's bad. But if you're responding to the medicine, then things are working. And what we're looking for in the world of advice is a chance to respond. So let's talk about receiving advice, asking for advice, because that's going on a lot. We're spending a lot of time and money asking for advice. Why is that? And why does it work so rarely? Well, I'll start with this. Creatives, people with a business idea, a novel, a painting, something that they have worked hard on, are well aware of the sunk costs, well aware of how it felt to lean into a new idea. Their situation is special. They are in a particular place. This thing they are building, it's important to them. And most of the time, people who are giving them feedback or advice, solicited or unsolicited, are simply wrong. They're telling them that the telephone or the internet will never amount to anything. They are rejecting their book for the 12th 
time. They are saying, no one's ever going to listen to music like this. Or, to quote IBM, the world market for computers might be five. There's a long, long history of skeptics expressing their fear, their uncertainty, their lack of vision with something that feels like advice. And so when someone is walking around with a creative idea, a new idea, something important to them, they tend to view critical feedback not as advice at all, but something to be girded against, to push back against. However, they also sometimes fall into the trap of seeking reassurance. Reassurance, as readers of my book, The Practice Know, is futile. This rubs some people the wrong way, so let me explain. Reassurance, someone telling you everything is going to be okay, can't possibly work. Because everything isn't going to be okay, and you know this. And even though it might feel good in the moment to be told that everything is going to be okay, deep down, because you know it isn't, now you doubt yourself and the person who just reassured you. It wears off really fast, and now you need more of it. So a cycle of craving reassurance appears. When we combine this with the lonely journey of the creator who's carrying around sunk costs, who's busy shopping for reassurance and ignoring the naysayers, we end up with a huge suck of time and money. That too often people go to their golf coach and say, without saying it, I want to swing exactly the way I've been swinging all along, but I want the ball to go straight and I want it to go far. And the golf coach gives good advice, explains how the person needs to change their stance and their arms and their focus and everything else. And the student who's paying good money listens and then doesn't change anything. If you don't believe me, go watch somebody take a golf lesson or just about any other kind of lesson that involves physical activity. That people go to music lessons for five or 10 years in a row without fundamentally changing their embouchure. Because we have habits, grooved habits, that we are protecting. And what we're actually looking for often when we go to see somebody for advice is not for them to change our mind, but for us to change their mind. For the advice giver to say, oh, you're right. What you're doing is brilliant. It's just a shame that you haven't gotten lucky. It's just a shame that the market is treating you unfairly. But here is the heart of it. If you're going to pay money to go to therapy or you're going to spend time to go online and watch a video or ask somebody for their opinion, you have the opportunity to act as if. In that moment, for just a little while, what if you did what they were describing instead? I got a call the other day from somebody who has had a great deal of success in broadcasting, and he had a new idea. He, quote, wanted to run by me. And within two minutes, a couple things were clear. One, I didn't think it was a good idea, and I could demonstrate through experience exactly why, exactly why so many other people with exactly the same idea had failed and why it was going to be brutally difficult and uncomfortable for him to pursue the idea. But second, it was clear that that's not really what he wanted to hear. What he wanted to hear was his idea was great and I would help him that his idea was great and it was really a shame that the rest of the world didn't see that. Of course, I wasn't willing to give up. So I said to him, can I describe to you for a couple of minutes an alternative 
that might work better, that I've seen work better in many other situations? Of course, he said, because he didn't want to be rude. But it became clear within 30 seconds that he wasn't even willing to try the pants on for size. He wasn't even willing to imagine what would happen if he walked away from the idea that through hard work and dedication he had fallen in love with for an idea that might work a bit better. If you're driving a car, your GPS doesn't work and you get lost and you pull over to ask for directions, here's the key question. What if the directions indicate that you're five miles out of your way? What if they indicate that you should turn right instead of left and go back a ways and start in a different direction? If they said that, would you ignore them and drive on to the next gas station and ask them the same question? Probably not, because we have enough familiarity with geography to realize that asking more people isn't really going to help. And we also understand that there's very little bit in the way of a placebo effect when it comes to getting lost. But when we're being creative, suddenly the person we thought it was okay to get reassurance from, it's not okay to get directions from. And I think that's where it all falls apart. I think what we have to do is be way more careful about who we ask for advice. And when we ask those people for advice, it should come with a commitment to try that advice on for size, to imagine all the way from the beginning to the end what it would be like to do it that way instead, not to blindly do it that way, not to instantly give up on the sunk costs and the decisions you've already made. No, but for an hour or a day, rewrite the business plan completely, redesign the deck, start over, just for a little while, just to try it on for size. A colleague of mine decided to start a breakthrough nonprofit, but he didn't say, I have a perfect idea, I'm gonna go do it. What he did instead is write three completely different 10-page business plans for three completely different breakthrough nonprofits. The only thing they had in common was that they were worth exploring. And then he made the commitment to pick one of the three. An exercise that I've done in events is put together a card. And on one side of the card, letterpress printed really nice. It says problem. And on the other side of the card, it says solution. And I ask people, just look at one side, just the problem side. And please, write down on it your perfect problem. The thing that is making you stuck. The thing that if you could get it solved, if you could get insight, if you could get past this, so many things in your life or your project would get better. Write down the problem in detail. Okay, I say, now turn it over. And now, hand the card to the stranger sitting next to you. We're going to ask the stranger sitting next to you to write down the very best solution they can think of. They haven't been studying your problem for months or years the way you have. They don't know it intimately. We're just asking them to put down the best solution they can think of. Now, I don't want you to look at the solution. That's not the point. What I say to people is this. If you're willing to have them write down the solution, are you willing to accept it? Are you willing to say, this is the best available path, I'm going to do it? My answer is probably no. No. No, because you sort of like being stuck. No, because it's your perfect problem. No, because what you really want is reassurance 
or a little bit of empathy or sympathy. If it's a problem, then by definition, it has a solution. If it has a solution, go solve it. And if it doesn't have a solution, then it's not a problem. Then it's a situation. And if it's a situation, then stop wasting time on it. Accept that like gravity, it's here to stay. Now what are you going to do? So that's a little bit of unsolicited advice about advice. But what I'm trying to get across here is simple. Life is about interesting problems. And what makes an interesting problem interesting is it hasn't been solved in quite this way before. That if we can solve it with generosity, ignoring sunk costs in a way that moves us forward so we can work on the next thing, we've done something useful. There are book proposals that I wrote in 1986 that never sold. I'm not working on them anymore. Deciding not to work on them anymore enabled me to have the career I've had. The same thing is true with so many of the things that we think of as problems that are actually situations. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. And good luck with your problem. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two questions and a clarification. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Mark Tweddle from Los Angeles. Um, I just listened to your Discovery Channel episode, and what you said about medium sort of triggered something in me that like I remember looking at Medium and thinking, oh, but they they have all the access to the audience, not me. And I've since discovered a thing called Substack that I'm quite excited about and I've used a little bit. But what I find is particularly interesting is it was it was made for writers, but now they've added podcasts. And so as a place to launch a podcast, it seems like a really great place because you have 
you get the email addresses of the people who give you that permission, who decide to subscribe to this newsletter. And whether or not your Apple podcast player is working or not, you'll still get the email and so you can still play the podcast. And so it, it sort of removes some middlemen. But obviously Substack remains kind of a middleman, but at the same time gives you doesn't take away that ownership of the email um, address list. So I'm sure it's not perfect. And I think what it's missing is about discoverability and it seems to be something that they're adding to. But I'd just like to know what your thoughts of Substack are and what um, is there something that's missing? Is there is there something I haven't thought of that's missing from it that I need to work around or or is it is it the best idea? Thank you for this. We could talk about gatekeepers and Substack for a really long time, but here's the short version. Number one, Substack seems like they're trying to help people with discovery. That in addition to being a platform where you can get paid to write or to podcast, part of the offer seems to be that being on Substack is different than using roll your own software, not just because it's easier, but because they will help you find customers. It is not clear to me that they can do that for very many people because the long tail just doesn't work that way. If there's 10,000 people using Substack, there's still going to be 10 that are in the top 10. The second part is that Substack is a largely open platform, which means that as it gains power and the ability to deliver things to people who want to get them, it will attract spammers and scammers. And I regularly get Substack spam, hard to say, fast, go ahead, try it. I regularly get Substack spam from people who just grabbed an email list somewhere and started pumping things through their channel. This is really bad, A, because it's not moral to steal people's attention, but B, because as Substack's clean channel for delivering messages to people who want to get them gets filled with spam, then people like Google are going to start to cut them off, and that's already happening. It moves to the promo folder. And if it moves to the promo folder, then the very thing you're talking about, which is the connection that you have to your listeners or your readers, is broken. I know this firsthand from my blog. My blog is blocked by Google in most places now by Gmail. And as a result, people, hundreds of thousands of people who signed up to get my blog by email don't get it because Google decided on their own they don't want people to get it. I don't approve of that. I don't think you do either. All of which is a way of saying that RSS, which has been around now for 20 years, which is the way that people subscribe to podcasts with their own podcast apps, is still the most resilient, most effective way to have subscribers. You don't need their email addresses. They are tuning you in on Tuner, where you are a preset channel, where your podcast arrives day after day or week after week. So the big win with a podcast and I'm so lucky that you are one of my subscribers, is that the podcast arrives. Google can't stop it. Nobody can, because it's a consensual relationship between the podcaster and the person who's listening. So if Substack is working for you, great. I'm not going to criticize that. But it's hard for me, as somebody who was right there at the beginning of email, newsletters, and communication, to see how it scales in a way that is resilient and effective for the people who want to use it as a form of promotion and 
ongoing connection. Hi, Seth. I'm Sylvain, Canadian living in Medellin, Colombia. In the 80s and 90s, I spent 12 years in the Canadian Air Force. And one of the most important lessons I learned during that time is this. If you are part of a team or operation, as in part of an air crew or a platoon or some kind of military operation, and you happen to notice that something is wrong or someone is mysteriously mistaken and that this could lead to a serious problem or even a catastrophe, if you don't speak up to stop it, then you are just as responsible as the person who caused the problem in the first place. Obviously, this is a crucial principle in the case of life or death situations, like a search and rescue operation or for a flight crew or an aircraft maintenance team. But it is a principle that I think applies to just about any non-trivial job, team, or project, and it has served me well over my various careers. This principle is now part of my life philosophy, but this means that I'm often regarded as overly opinionated. In this age of pandemics, climate change, military conflicts, racism, and extreme right-wing politics, my conscience doesn't allow me to remain silent. So I critic criticize and correct people often, and sometimes I'm told, if you don't have anything nice to say, just shut up. To me, that is a very naive and counterproductive philosophy, but it seems that a lot of people disagree with me. I'm not suggesting that we should go around insulting everyone we disagree with, but if no one ever spoke up about disinformation and toxic beliefs, we would still be in the dark ages, burning witches and scientists. I'd like to hear what you think and how you approach these situations. Thanks for being you, who you are. Thank you for this one, Sylvain. And as you've pointed out, there's a lot of complexities to this whole idea of speaking up. I think your first example, which is pure and perfect, is that if you see something, say something, obviously is critical when we're talking about matters of imminent life and death. There's not a lot of argument about it. If the pilot forgot to close the door securely, everyone should speak up. Where we run into trouble not even trouble, just complications, is A, if there's a time differential, if you're speaking up about something that might happen in 10 years, or B, if there are differences of opinion. That doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up in both of those cases. In fact, it might be even more important to speak up in those cases. However, it's also going to be controversial and needs to be handled a little bit differently because you don't get to just hit the stop everything button simply because you noticed something. And so the opportunity we have is to figure out what noise do other people have in their head? What pressures are they under? What fears are they feeling? What is the emotional state? How is the culture being manipulated and pushed by people who might not even be in the room with you? And then seeing that and knowing that, how do we take effective action? Not just action that clears our conscience, but effective action that causes a change to happen. And one of the things that social media has done is created a business model around division and hatred and animosity and screaming. So doing more of that just because it works on social media, it's hard for me to see how you can be proud of that. However, I do think we have the opportunity to persistently 
consistently and in a focused way, do the hard work over time of changing the culture for the better. But we can't do it in five minutes. We have to decide where we're going to show up, how we're going to show up, and how to consistently do it. And that's a little different than the way they do it in the Canadian Armed Forces, but I think it's just as important. And the fact that we need patience and persistence to do it in a world that doesn't seem to reward patience and persistence makes it even more important and even more difficult. Thank you for this. And a clarification. In my episode on the Discovery Channel, I used the word trade when I was talking about the casting couch in Hollywood. That word has many meanings. I shouldn't have used a word that was imprecise. What I meant to say is this. Cultural pressure has pushed many people who want to be discovered, particularly in Hollywood, to show up to put themselves into situations where other people illegally, immorally take advantage of that situation. It is not the fault of the person who is assaulted. It is not the fault of the person who is harassed. And I didn't mean to imply that it was. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.